You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! Is that clear? You think you've merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back! It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. The Six is supposed to win the game tonight, they think. I don't keep track of that shit. They think on game seven you're not going to get fucking 18 points. They don't think you're going to get eight rebounds? These guys don't know shit about that. What the fuck are they doing? Doesn't that make you want to fucking kill them? Doesn't that make you want to say, fuck you for doubting me? Doesn't that make you want to step on fucking Elton Brand's fucking neck? Come on, KG. This is no different than that. This is me. All right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I work. Welcome back to Odd Splice, the best damn movie podcast in the world. I'm your host, Josh Christensen. This week I talked to Dr. Michael Van Dyke, a scholar of 20th century literature about network and uncut gems. We discussed how these two movies are connected by the city of New York itself, the 1970s both as a time period and aesthetic sensibility, and everyone's favorite undefinable buzzword, neoliberalism. Before getting to our discussion, a sincere thank you to everyone who's been listening to and watching premium Odd Splice branded content for the past couple weeks. Your response has been overwhelmingly positive, and I hope to keep making stuff that's worthy of your praise. Again, don't forget to rate and review, like and subscribe if you enjoy the show, and visit oddsplice.com for more info. And now, our feature presentation. Well, all right, Mike, before we get started, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Michael Van Dyke. And I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I teach at a, a school called Cornerstone University here, and uh, primarily literature, writing, uh, occasionally film classes, philosophy, kind of an overall humanities person. PhD in American Studies from Michigan State University, 1999. Yeah, I'm interested in uh, film, post World War II period, especially, although. Uh, film noir of the of the early 40s is also late 30s early 40s is also a an interest so yeah and my dissertation was on the poet kenneth rexroth primarily known as a san francisco poet lived from 1905 to 1982 i think uh, an underappreciated intellectual of the 20th century and uh, i've been working on a book about him for a long time i'm also interested in critical theory, and also intersections with, with uh, theology and how radicalism and, and theology and the arts intersect. That's probably enough. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty wide swath. Well, there's a lot of overlap because uh, I took your classes <laughs> between, uh, what, 2009 and 2012? Yeah, um, the glory years. <laughs> I was just thinking about this yesterday. I, actually, I was talking with someone about uh, things I assign in my classes uh, and you know cornerstone is a little can be a little bit rigid in uh, in what they want to present to their students and I told them at one point that I showed eraser head in one of my upper level lit courses primarily uh, I think at your prompting or at your encouragement and maybe I was I, uh, whether to show it or not i strong-armed you uh, <laughs> or from from my perspective i i remember going into your office and like look you, you need to do this uh, you shamed me into it yes you're right <laughs> if you <laughs> I, I felt much i i realized i would feel much more shame not showing it than from showing it uh to these innocent um uh students yeah so, anyway how yeah, that was a that yeah that was an experience. I I myself have some ambivalent feelings about the fallout from that, but it was it was cool to watch a racer head. Uh, yeah, 
which I, I think that's a good uh, a good segue into into one of our um, one of the reasons we've kept up with each other over the years is our our shared interest in American cinema during the 1970s mm-hmm. and and generally that period uh, kind of the the whole new Hollywood thing. Uh, now we're recording a podcast about it, and the movies we're covering are Network, which was directed by Sidney Lumet in 1976. And maybe counterintuitively, but on brand for this show, Uncut Gems from just this last year, mm-hmm. directed by the Safdie brothers. Uh, Makes total sense to me. So what what could possibly connect these two films? One being very much the product of its time, and then I'd say Uncut Gems is, a, I mean, a period piece of its own, but it's it specifically sets itself in the 2010s. Like, it's, it's set in 2012 yeah. or so. Well, we, we first see Howard Ratner's colon in 2012, or at least that's set in 2012. So I, I remember that distinctly. Yeah, that whole that whole interplay of geology and uh, soft tissue is, yeah. is something something else. I, I, I've been thinking on it intensely. My life actually encompasses the 1970s, and I, I was thinking about this. And, you know, I was a little bit too young to watch a lot of films and plus I was a a preacher's kid. So uh, what I could watch was fairly limited. I I, I do remember like going over to my aunt and uncles and and watching, I think Lenny, about Lenny Bruce uh, played by Dustin Hoffman, I believe. If you want to kind of create a schema, what, what what are, what are films of the seventies or what are, what is the seventies? I know that a lot of people, treat it kind of like uh, historians treat what they call the long 19th century, right? 1789 to 1914, French Revolution to World War One. I. I think the 70s, you know, some people uh, started with Bonnie and Clyde and I think 67, some people Easy Rider in 69, and then some people like to say the 70s ended uh, – what with with jaws maybe in 1975 or with star wars in 1977 although you had some interesting films of course in the later 70s that you would i I would count as as having that somewhat ambiguous 70s feel i think and this maybe goes against the um against the grain of how we've personally talked about the 70s but I do remember being 10 years old, sitting in uh, an old movie palace in downtown Lansing, Michigan, sitting next to my 12-year-old cousin, and we were there for Star Wars. And Star Wars had just been released to theaters. And we were sitting in like the second or third row of the theater. And if you remember the beginning of Star Wars, uh, the Death Star sort of comes out of the back of your head on the screen there. And... My 12-year-old cousin, you know, this is after the crawl, but then the, the Death Star comes across the screen. And my 12-year-old cousin, I just hear him saying, this is the best movie I've ever seen. And I think you know, <laughs> it, it was a break. I mean, there was something different there. Now, I mean, it's there are many reasons to maybe lament what happened to the movies. But I, I, I don't want to lose the reality that when these big you know, when Jaws came out, when Star Wars came out, when um, E.T. a little bit late. I mean, at that time, it was like the first time I ever heard Michael Jackson sing uh, Billie Jean. It was like, I've never, I've never heard, I've never seen this before, what they're doing here. Again, even though we can kind of look back and say, well, that was the, the, the end of the 70s, the 70s that we love, it should be kept in mind that uh, there was a reason that these other movies became super popular, and they were providing a sort of experience that just galvanized people's attention. You know, use that to make a whole heaps of money and uh, to, to market and to they, they figured out a way to do that that was pretty powerful, especially especially on a 10-year-old psyche at the time. Uh, if you're a 10-year-old seeing Star Wars in 1977, it affects you. So I, I don't know if I, uh, why I'm throwing that in there, just maybe to set some, some context that, that it's, it's a little bit more complicated sometimes than the narratives we even create in our critical minds. 
it was only later that I really came back and appreciated the the qualities that I would associate with the 70s in terms of American movies and became a big Martin Scorsese fan and sort of looked into other, you know, uh, some of Jack Nicholson's, you know, Five Easy Pieces, uh, the, the math detail, things like that. So uh, my, my appreciation for those movies that have that sort of feel that we associate with 70s, it came after really being sort of powerfully shaped by those other things <laughs> that happened that... Uh, that caused Hollywood to shift in, in, and for their financial models to, uh, to to alter and become sort of cemented in a certain direction. And maybe it's just I was a kid at that time, and I was the perfect audience for for those types of things. I mean, I mean that's a good point. Is like as much as like something like Star Wars became paradigmatic of the future, it was still of a piece of all these other things and all this stuff that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. Lucas went to film school with Scorsese. They were into, they were exposed to a lot of the same stuff and were working on a similar wavelength. That's Scorsese. Like he, he leverages his nostalgia in a different way. And Lucas was kind of the leveraging his nostalgia too, but in a more straightforward way. Again, it was, it was, it was something that, you know, I also remember in the early eighties when I was, yeah, maybe 15 or so. I'm trying to remember when uh, when the U.S. invaded Gren- Grenada, but there was this feeling coming out of the 70s. I mean, it was a real feeling. Like, and I and I was just a, a young teenager. This uh, America in decline truly was why Ronald Reagan was elected, because people had this this feeling, or at least the people that you know my family hung around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There was a sense of malaise to use the term uh, associated with Jimmy Carter, there was there was a feeling like we just wanted a jolt to the senses. Uh, we're invading Granada. We don't even know what, you know, we're going down and we're kicking butt and, you know, throwing our weight around again, like maybe we did back in World War II. And so that, that nostalgia was, was powerful because it came after a period when uh, standards of living had dropped during the 70s a little bit. Although, you know, unions were still strong and, uh, you know, guys I went to high school with knew that if nothing else worked out, they could go down to GM and get a job that day. But that in the early 80s started started uh, started declining. And I think some some of these movies were just there were shots of adrenaline um, that were purely visceral. There was nothing really intellectual about them in terms of their effect. Right. It's it's kind of like, you know, you look at a sort of celebrated 70s action film or something that would be considered an action film you got the french connection right it's this like long sort of odyssey through the underworld your protagonist is like completely amoral and and then by like by like the mid 80s it's it's schwarzenegger star vehicles where he's just like right you know turning entire armies into pink goo Getting back to like, yeah, what you were saying, that sort of malaise or the slow decline. I mean, I think that's a good a good way to start talking about network. If there's a movie that's like emblematic of what we could probably point as the start of a slow erosion of our, our vaunted cultural institutions, mm-hmm. I feel like that movie maps it out pretty uh, starkly. It is the film that kind of lays out, you know, in 1976 to sort of lay out a an understanding of of neoliberalism, you know, how these things would work. I think that seems fairly early to me to, you know, for someone like Patty Chayefsky to have a, have a handle, not, you know, not perfectly. There, there are probably some things that were wrong, but I mean, things did play out. It's, it's the same thing that's happened to uh, universities, uh, academia, basically evaluating the university according to means of evaluation that were totally different from, from much of the past. And so it became a matter of, you know, your program survived if you brought in enough money to, to the university. And, and, and truly at Cornerstone, the only reason the humanities division has survived is that we uh, service the core curriculum or the general education curriculum. So yeah, network, I thought, captured that fairly, fairly early. I, can you, re- can you think of a film that, point by point analyze some of the basic dynamics of a, of a shift to neoliberalism 
Yeah, probably not. Because I mean, it's I, I don't think like that stuff becomes like really stark until the the New York fiscal crisis. Yeah. So I wonder that. Yeah, that probably shaped the the end of it. Because like Paddy Shaevsky as a writer, he'd been kicking around TV studios. But yeah, I think he started off trying wanting to sort of map out the what he saw as the decline of his own industry. And then by virtue of doing that, tapped into something that was actually just starting to happen at every level of society. Well, I mean, he was he was pissed off by the early 70s. I mean, this it's a total grievance film on his part. You know, he's getting back at, at the TV industry uh, in a very personal way. Although, I mean, he... He, he does transform that into into art. Maybe you won't agree with me on this, but I was just thinking about network in terms of its form as being actually very theatrical, being something that could almost be just presented on a stage, which is, I mean, the fact that we're seeing it as a film, you know, on a, on a screen is, I think, important to, to think about in regard to this. But, you know, in terms of the blocking, in terms of the, how the scenes are actually... Um, orchestrated it's really dependent on a lot of things from the the theater which i think is where shayevsky got his his primal start the thing about that is that in the theater really the only way to create a sense of interiority for the actors is to is to be very dramatic even if that even if that drama is an extended silence, you're risking something if you're trying to do subtle, you know, convey subtle interior state on a stage where your audience is, is in the dark, you know, 50 feet away. In network, I was trying to think about when a character kind of lets their their subjectivity out, or, you know, or, yeah. or or their vulnerability out. It's like squashed right away, or it's it's not it's not allowed. And so there's a sort of double. There's there's the fact that it's staged almost like a theater piece. So you only really have emotion coming through when people are acting really dramatic. But it's also like the the movie itself is focusing on how how these people playing roles that don't have a lot of interiority to them yeah i think you're really onto something there kind of as an example like especially the scenes between uh william holden and faye dunham like they're constantly like narrating each other they're both creatures of these different eras of of television production he's trying to go back to like the edward r murrow days he's constantly like we need to you know go back to this this time of like integrity and uh stature Uh, in the medium and Faye Dunaway's character Diana Christensen is constant innovation um, Mm -hmm. and constantly getting the numbers up and and constantly playing the game their scenes together are just them narrating each other's reaction to each other and then not really knowing why they're attracted to the to each other in the first place you know it becomes unsustainable because it it almost feels incestuous at a certain point (laughs) yeah it's really odd the way that they you know I think William Holden is you know there's just a he doesn't get involved with uh, Diana because of her her interiority. It's more of her exteriority that it, that I think he's he's interested in. Yeah, I mean that that kind of fits with what's happening though in in TV because what are you doing when you're when you're creating a commodity, right? the the old The old sort of liberal humanist idea is that you know art and translating that into the media age you you present things in a certain way that you are you're 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 pointing towards depths right you're pointing towards deep human meanings you're pointing towards a, a sort of inner morality so that that art is supposed to make you a better person and that's exactly what diana christensen is is rejecting she's taking everything and divesting it of any of its deeper meaning, or, or at least bringing that sort of abjectly to the surface and exploiting it and making sure that it's it's something that can then, well, very literally be capitalized upon. I don't know if we want to jump into theory. Oh, let's go for it. Theory time. I mean, that, that is the fetishization of commodities, right? You, you think that what you're getting is is containing something more than it is but it's but it's not i think what you have and maybe this is what postmodern one of the things postmodernism is about is that you know, consumers are not experiencing things for 
for what those things are or can do. They're they're starting to desire and starting to consume things based on how they then can be appropriated to consume other things. So I think I think Marx talked about it in terms of use value versus exchange value. So in traditional capitalism, uh, commodities have both of these values, right? You, you buy things because of what they are and what they can do, but also everything maintains an exchange value. You can then exchange, you can exchange it in order to get something else. And, and money is pure exchange value. So I think postmodernism is where you have this shift away from maybe a balance between exchange value and use value towards almost entirely exchange value, which is all about surfaces. If, if depths are those things that thing, you know, represent what those things are and what they can do, almost in an Aristotelian sense of essence, um, you know, exchange value is like you're you're not you're not you're not settling into anything. You're not making something a part of you. It's not it's not making your life better. It's 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 giving you another stage from which to uh, consume, in a sense. Think about the housing market. What's happened to the housing market? Something I'm in the middle of right now. I feel like people don't buy houses as much anymore to just find some place to settle into to make make as their home uh, more and more and we've been ex- experiencing it looking for houses people are buying houses to flip them even if they aren't flipping them for 10 years they're buying their houses to they're inhabiting them i think in a more superficial way than people used to think about their homes uh, so it's a subtle shift right away from focusing on yeah. use value of a commodity toward the pure exchange value, which I think then becomes interesting when uh, in uncut gems you have, that's, that's the world that, that Howard Ratner dwells in, you know, uh, he's always, he's always just setting the stage for the next thing. He's always, he's going from what he's always deferring that sort of final or, or settling in as into what he has it's interesting to me that the movie starts with, you know, this sort of descent into the the black opal, and supposedly there's this other cosmos there, which I think they're they're presenting something about how this black opal is perceived within other people's minds or brains. I think if you cut, you know, if you actually go beyond the uncut stage to the cut stage with a black opal, you you pretty much get more black opal. Right, you get more surfaces primarily. I don't think you open up a, a mystical cosmos when you cut a gem. The uncut gem is just—it's pure potential. Like it's—it's it's yeah. not quite a commodity in and of itself. It needs to be further developed to be the perfect thing. That—that that sort of seamless transition from the interior pure potentiality, the infinite possibility inside the black opal, mm-hmm. you know, seamlessly turns into Howard Ratner's colon. Like, I think in a lot of ways, like, Howard doesn't realize he's an uncut gem. Like, he... Mm. He's so caught up in this, yeah, this game of only working with potential, only dealing with surfaces and and uh, exchange value. This movie has been called like the most, you know, stressful or intense thing that anyone's seen in, in the past few years here. I think that was a title held by good time before that by by all appearances this man is set he's he's got a successful business a family a a a big house on long island there's just something in his brain that just doesn't allow him to be satisfied with that and so at the end end, we don't know whether he's 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 reached his i mean he is he's he's reached his terminus (laughs) uh right due to uh uh brother phil comes in is howard truly going to just hand over the money and go off to an island and rest or is is he going to like open let them out of the glass enclosure there and say but hey guys i've got this i've got one other thing that that i think i can do with this money (laughs) and 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 if somebody said well no no he's he's at the end you've said that like six or eight times throughout the film that this, this has to be the place where he's going to stop. Right. You know, it's not because you know, he has, they have to fill up two hours, but it's like, 
he's, he's had all of these, he's never investing in a way that, that, that ties him down. And I, I mean, I think that's, again, a, a really interesting thing that the Safties are doing by kind of playing off his character, by, by emphasizing kind of the, 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 the Jewish roots of his character. He's basically someone who has, he's not committed himself to his family in any way. You know, he's not, he's not set down roots and even in his own, uh, uh, family, you know, even with his kids. Um, although it seems that his son has, has picked up his gambling habit already at what the age of 12 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, but then you have this Jewish aspect here and he says, he says towards the beginning of the film that, you know, because they were, they were mined by the, you know, these Ethiopian, Jews, he says, you know, it took it took a hundred million years to form these these gems. You know, these are these are rooted in in the unfathomable past. And in the same way, Judaism has you know these ancient roots. And they at the Passover Seder, they they go through the the plagues, right, ending with the death of the firstborn. He's this. He's kind of in that world. He's in that world more than Arno is. Who won't won't even say happy Hanukkah or he says happy holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he's not, he's not uh, the Judd Hirsch character, Gooey, <laughs> uh, right. who, who is the representative of that history. You know, he's, uh, you know, as per his name, he's, he's the stickiness of the family that brings that, brings it all together and kind of sticks it uh, into that, that that rootedness of the ancient past. So Howard is is um, he's not Arno, but he's not Gooey. He's somewhere maybe more towards Arno, and maybe it's just for contrast. But I think you know the Safties very consciously bring in that that Jewish aspect, and and also for another reason, which I think we we're going to talk about at some point in terms of the relationship between Jewish Americans and African Americans. Yeah, no no fixed identity even though he has all these signifiers of identity. Yeah, but I, but I think he's drawn to it, right, in certain in certain ways. I think it's also uh, another way of thinking about this sort of rootedness in a different reality besides just sort of the the, the superficial exchanges, you know, transactions that are going on all around him. Uh, is to think about it in terms of the body, right? Because mm. our bodies also took a long time to form, you know, <laughs> just like the opals. And so, you know, it would be, we begin the movie with that scene of the miner being carried out and his, his, his leg has, you know, been turned into hamburger there, basically. Uh, and this is the physical reel of, of what's going on there in these Chinese controlled mines in Ethiopia, uh, it, it ultimately comes down on the body and the body, you know, is the, you know, especially for the Jews, right? Traditionally, there's a, a very well-known physical marker of Jewish identity. It's inscribed in, in the body from generation to generation, you know, at the very point of generation is where this is where this happens. So he's, he's, I think he's sort of pulled toward this and, uh, but, but yet he's, he's, he's too, he's already caught. He's already caught up in these networks of, 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 of debts and um, transactions. And I would like to think he's trying to find a way out of it, right? Cause he's, he's in it. So is, is he thriving in it or is he trying to escape it finally? You know, is that his natural habitat or is it, is he trying to find his way back toward a more rooted existence? Uh, doesn't let us find out. <laughs> Howard Ratner's story has ended definitively and violently. Uh, one, one thing I keep dancing around is how, so, so just comparing it to, to network for, for a yeah. second. So if network is sort of like, you know, the warning signs of an imminent collapse. Like this is like uncut gems is after the collapse. Uh, it's neoliberalism is, you know, it's triumphant. It's not just this emerging consensus or this potential for destruction. It's uh network is set in 1976, New York. I mean, it, it is mostly set in like skyscrapers. It's mostly set above New York, but we, you know, you just say the phrase New York in the 1970s. 
it conjures up some very specific images for people. And and then if you say New York in the late 90s, early 2000s or Rudy Giuliani's New York, that that conjures up some different images. I'll I'll just say that, uh, like, Howard Ratner is kind of a perfect subject of neoliberalism or an ideal uh, idealized subject of neoliberalism. It's pure surface, pure exchange value pure potential and he's just absolutely exhilarated by the game itself well i I, one one other way of putting that is that he has been the the he of his identity has has been formed by that has been shaped by that i mean he's 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 been created by what he is right to a certain extent so in other words he's you know, talking about this in terms of subjectivity, his his way of confronting the world. There's there's no way at this point to know whether you know, how much of that is just his natural, you know, who he is and who he was going to be. Uh, how much his 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 subjectivity, his his sensorium has been shaped by that world. I mean, I, again, I think it's that in some way. It, it comes back to the the body. You know, I think about Julia, the character of Julia. She's an interesting character because she provides a sort of temptation for him in in several senses. As someone who does want to maybe relate to him on something other than a transactional level, she's the one. She you know gets the the tattoo of you know Howie. Yep, yep. <laughs> so she she inscribes him on her flesh in a way that you can't imagine his wife uh, doing. She's a she's maybe not so, someone who is uh, been 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 shaped by her 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 environment or by this sort of rapid fire layering of of transactional exchanges. She's I mean she's not she she's very different from Diana Christensen. Uh, I think because she she is I don't know Josh I'm I'm losing my train of thought here right yeah there was something She's, there well, I think that's kind of rooted in like how genuine her affection for Howard seems to be. Oh. He employs her at the business and she's, you know, when she's not at work, she's trying to sell jewelry to, to up and coming rappers, uh, the weekend in this, (laughs) in this instance. Um, so she's a part of a lot of the same games, but it's like a different world. But then like she, she presents somebody who's willing to accept Howard with all of his contradictions and with all of his messiness. Like I keep thinking of that, like the tattoo where she shows him the, the tattoo and he's like so frustrated and exhausted and just weeping. Like, you know, I, I can't fix it. I can't make this right. Um, as everything's sort of catching up to him in that, the, you know, what more or less becomes the end game of the film, but she's the person who's like, all right, I'm, I'm here to help you. And I, I accept you for who who you are. Like there isn't a, mm-hmm. You're right. There isn't a condition. There's something beyond just a transaction going on between the two of them. There, there, there is a really genuine partnership between between them. And it, it's interesting you phrase that as like a temptation because she is in in a lesser movie. She would be like strictly just this like mean Jezebel character, right? And and I don't even think we find out exactly what happened, or maybe maybe I missed it, what happens between her and The weekend, what, in the restroom or wherever they were when... I mean, I think Howard is assuming that she's operating according to sort of his, his logic. She might be faithful in a way that's very strange for this this movie. I mean, her, her and Gooey, uh, Gooey, when he comes to the auction... You know, and Howard says, "Oh, okay. You've got to, you've got to start bidding on these opals. You got to get Kevin Garnett up there." You know, he says, "This was all supposed to be about support. This was all about me supporting you coming here." And 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 yes, they, he wants to get his uh, his grandson or grandnephew or whatever, you know, Kevin Garnett's autograph. So there's that, but that's sort of trivial in terms of why he's there. And, you know, Howard says to Julia when he's having his breakdown, you know, I wish you were nicer to me. There's something ironic there, but I think it's also that she doesn't want to just be nice to him. But, you know, she wants some something that's represented by, you know, again, transcribing his name on her body. I think one of the, 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 one of the many signs of, uh, of how 
Howard, just how the how the transaction always trumps the the sentiment, but sentiment not in a totally negative. I think you know, I think there are, there are more more or less interesting ways of being sentimental. You know, he he trades the well, he does something with his Knicks ring, his Knicks championship ring, in order to get the Celtics ring. The 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 Knicks ring means something to him, right? He was a little kid growing up in New York, and the Knicks won the 1973 championship. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, this this is actually meaningful to him, but it's that doesn't mean he isn't going to to hawk it or to, or to you know take it to the pawn shop, um, because on on a certain level, it's just it's just something to exchange. There's there's nothing there's nothing that can't be exchanged, which is the logic of neoliberalism, right? In a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Everything has exchange value. Not only that, not only that, but that everything is primarily defined by its exchange value. That that is the most important, or mm-hmm. really the only uh, value to consider. Everything else is sentimental. So yeah, that that might be a good point to sort of jump into the the basketball aspect. Yeah. of this movie because it does center on a real series of games that Kevin Carnett had in in 2012 what? um i I'm, i i listened to a podcast with the safties and like the development of this movie is wild they actually went through like several different basketball players they knew they wanted to center the narrative on a series of like oh you have a good game you have kind of a not great game and then a like phenomenal game and i can't remember the other players cuz i'm not a basketball guy but like it took them a long time to land on kevin garnett and this particular series of games which kind of determined um the setting you know but it had to be kevin garnett i think because just for his name right oh yeah line yeah he's a stone for a stone you know (laughs) i mean kevin garnett is was you know a commodity himself a very valuable commodity for his his team but he's going going back to the the way they put this film together. Yeah, I did some reading on that as well. And the Safties, I think in their in their way of working and their way of operating, I think they were trying to create the potential for for losing control of the process. I don't know how sincerely that would have happened, but there were certain scenes in which they didn't tell characters what the other character was going to do. And, and like, well, I mean, the, the most dramatic example is at the end where Phil and the other goon and, and Arno come out of the, the glass cage there. And yeah, so, I mean, he takes care of Howard right away. And then, uh, you know, Arno, uh, the Eric Bogosian character, supposedly didn't know exactly what was going to happen in that scene. And, uh, he wasn't. He he didn't know that Phil was going to like grab him and rough him up, and he said he said he was genuinely scared because uh, this uh, uh, Keith Michael Richards, you know, had never acted in a movie before, and that's that's risky in and of itself. But then I guess the Safties basically told him, you know, how would you act in this situation? You know, if it was just you, right, yeah. How, how, would, you, <laughs> how would you handle this? And so Bogosian didn't know if. Uh, Richards was just getting into the moment too much and whether he might actually hurt him because, you know, he's not a trained actor and maybe he's, he's losing his mind a little bit here. And so, I mean, they're, they're going for those sorts of moments when they're, they're sort of uh, leaving it up to chance a little bit what happens, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're breaking, they're breaking down a certain potential smoothness to, they're not. They're not entirely controlling the relationship that they're having to the viewer. In that, in that sense, if you if you somehow see people viewing this film as the as as the ones who are go- going to actually give it the value that it has, uh, they're they're taking some risks there. I, I don't think Julia's character was really an, an an actor before this. I think she was a someone who was well known in, in, in like dance clubs. She was sort of an entertainer in certain ways. Not in that you know euphemistic way, but she wasn't really a, a seasoned actor. I know the the scene. I think the scene where Howard gets thrown in in the fountain. I guess what they did is that they didn't tell anybody around there that they were actually making a movie. So they got reactions from people that were more real. 
you know, they were they were disappointed that they had to get permits to to make an actual legitimate movie in New York. This, I think, is a is a connection back to the seventies in in certain ways, but in in a very formal sort of aesthetic sense, which is that you know, again, these film school directors. Uh, a lot of what they were watching was well yeah european art cinema because i mean like uh yeah i I don't know why i attribute it exclusively to pier paolo pasolini but yeah the use of non non non-professional actors to to give a certain feel you know is has roots in european art cinema for sure yeah i I think um, i think you pointing to like italian neorealism is exactly the right place to look because you know, even the the French New Wave is not possible without Italian neorealism. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that that sets the basis for so much that comes comes after. And so the Safties are they're in that vein, they're in that tradition, beholden to it. And you know, even though it might be just part of their personalities, you know that that sin, that that urge for a sort of cinema verite is in their filmmaking DNA. Anyway, I mean, I, I think just sort of the the, the reckless factor here—it's interesting yeah. to me because it's 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 it is this—it's it's one of the things that for me uh, draws a connection back to the to the seventies and these filmmakers who were very much influenced by Italian neorealism. I, I kind of want to zoom in on Keith Michael Richards' performance for a bit. So I know as as we've been talking over the past few weeks, I think we've we've talked about like The Sopranos a little bit, <laughs> and I'm. I, I feel like I'm on record in a few places saying that David Pruvel, Richie Aprile in The Sopranos is one of the most terrifying performances I've ever seen. Yeah, I got those exact same vibes from Keith Michael Richards, and this is the f- dude's first appearance on camera. Yeah, it's it's something to behold, honestly. Even from that first shot of him, they they just build up the suspense throughout the movie, and you know, hint at his potential or capacity for violence, and then deliver on it in that last yeah. scene. Between the direction and just how the guy carries himself, it's something. It's something else. I mean, The Sopranos, and you know, even going back to The Godfather, there's that that rootedness in the the code or the uh, the family or the a large part of that in the 70s was angst about you know foundations you know, every everything seems to be uh, the rug seems to be being pulled out from everything that people had had trusted in so the godfather you know becomes this film that well you know these are these are criminals but they're 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 rooted in something real they're you know, of the soil right of the blood in, in the body but i think uh Phil, this is a guy that's like pure id. He he wants the money now. In a way, it's it's more of an abstract matter of honor. There, there's maybe something about uh, this character that makes all of us nervous because he's going to disrupt the smooth flow of capital. He might just break in and just you know um, throw a bomb into the middle of all of it. Um, he's he's messing things up for the the smooth functioning of the system. I guess I was I was always kind of mystified as to what his exact relationship to Arno was. Like if he was just a hired goon or a representative of someone above Arno. In an increasingly abstract world, right of, of finance capitalism, of of diamonds as pure commodities, of you know diamonds representing I think just you know pure surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is this is someone who who goes by his gut, his viscera. He would not find a place in Plato's Republic. He he wants he wants the money as an object uh, representing sort of just his his own street sense of justice. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be motivated by getting rich himself. It's just there's some sort of code going on. Yeah, he's a very kind of like Sam Peckinpah figure he'd be the protagonist in in a in a wild bunch that kind of that kind of uh masculinity i i don't want to paint him as like this some sort of reactionary figure the way he's he's being presented is as he, he's an intrusion of the real you know with a, a bullet hole to the brain it's all it's all got to answer to material reality at a certain point like what is the cutoff like you know if, if if howard had his way it would be he'd be leveraging all of his asset assets towards larger and riskier bets until the end of time which is what our economy is doing our world is doing man going going back to 
network a little bit. It's it's yeah. uh you know where where Uncut Gems is is couched in, in uh, propulsive chaotic realism. I, I never thought of network as theater before, but I think it's really snapping some things into place for for me for that movie. It is so staged and it plays up its artificiality. But I want to zoom in on uh the infamous Ned Beatty monologue. Yeah, where you know he sits Howard uh Howard Beale down and lays out his his sort of capitalist cosmology and sort of recruits Howard to be the prophet of that, which leads to the ratings tanking. Right. Both of these movies are the two Howards take a bullet or several bullets in the yeah. case of, of Howard Beale at, at the the end. And I think it's hard to argue that Howard Beale is the protagonist of Network, but he's certainly a central figure where you could make the argument that Howard Ratner brought it on himself. Howard Beale's fate is explicitly set as the cold calculation of middle management. That whole scene with with Robert Duvall and, and Faye Dunaway just going like, "All right, Howard's ratings are down, and we have to we have to put together the schedule for next season. Uh, what what can what can we do?" What's really done well there is the sort of seamless transition. I mean, yeah, I mean they're they're already moving into this sort of consciousness with uh, you know Communication Corporation of America, which Ned Beatty is the I guess the head of you start the film with at least, you know, Max Schumacher is in charge of the news division and yeah, their, their ratings are going down and, and, and Howard is um, Howard's been told that he's a, he's a liability. So, so there, there's, there's this, but then the Robert Duvall character, how quickly he just shifts over into this, Logic, which comes back to bite him in the in the butt because you know Howard uh, ticks off the Saudis. Forgot about the whole like oil crisis element network. What a movie! That's the, the Ned Beatty thing. He's not Ned Beatty stands in stark contrast to Diana Christensen because Ned Beatty has bigger fish to fry. He doesn't want Howard to keep his "I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore." Uh, shtick going not that it was a shtick for howard he wants him to kind of rein things in on the air he's doing that not because he thinks that that will help the ratings but i think because he thinks that that is going to be one sort of pressure point in a whole uh, range or constellation of different pressure points in this global environment and so he's kind of playing these different aspects. You know, Howard Beale is just one little part of what he's dealing with here. And I think that's part of his message. But he doesn't want this one little part, even though he's in the short term creating great ratings, to ultimately, you know, do damage to the whole ecosystem of which he's a part. Now, there's actually maybe something a little bit naive about that in, in Shaevsky's uh, uh, writing of yeah. that character. You know, that it's all about sort of control at a certain level, because I think by the time, by by 2012, I think people realize that it's capital itself that's calling the shots and not necessarily a cabal sitting somewhere. And, I, you know, Nate Beatty saying that, you know, the capital is calling the shots, but, it's, but he's simplifying it over much because what has to happen is that capital is actually not breaking down like national barriers in the sense that Beatty's talking about, but it's being parasitical upon all of these things, right? It's drawing surplus value from all of these things and not obliterating them. So. I, I might push back on that a little bit. I, I think Beatty is, isn't supposed to be like a cipher like he's presented as a member of you know a shadowy cabal that runs the world he's narrating like a utopian vision of capital right he's like mm -hmm. all right if we just put our trust in capital yeah. every man will get a stock in the giant corporation that is humanity and we'll all be working to like better ourselves and increase market share i think ned Beatty himself is you know sort of a higher level prophet of capital <laughs> so he is capital speaking you're saying yeah i just don't think he's 100 percent identified with it like he's he's giving voice to mm. the neoliberal consensus but i think it still follows that like we've come to realize it's capital itself it's it's this ambiguous assemblage of various people with power but what network the the film i feel like illustrates is it's a constant deferral of responsibility yeah. of things going wrong nobody wants to be left holding the hot potato at the end of the day yeah. and since howard beale is is sort of the most uh guileless of anybody 
there like he he's mm. lost his his will to play the game like he's like all right i'll tell the truth and the truth will set you free no it just means be you've become the most naive person in this organization and the buck's gonna stop with you well and uh yeah and stop on his body i keep coming yeah that. <laughs> uh, before my brain gets totally tired can i can okay I, can we can we talk a little bit about I, I know, you know, network is in a fairly wasp world, although in some ways it's, you know, it's presenting the sort of Patty Chayefsky is, is Jewish and, and very adamantly so in his, in his, his opinions. He was a virulent supporter of the state of Israel, things like that. He was kind of serving a, 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 an East Coast, Upper East Coast, you know, sort of liberal message in this, right? The one thing that didn't... I mean, and it, maybe it's me asking more from the text than than I ever should have in the first place. But yeah, like the kind of tossed off way that uh, Shaevsky talks about like actual political radicalism put me off a little bit more. Just yeah, the realization that he is like ultimate land, ultimately landing on a very waspy liberal message, and he's more concerned with portraying the decay of the news rather than articulating some sort of radical politics. You know, and in that sense, I think that Diana Christensen and her, in her use of the somewhat hilariously named, at least in my mind, ecumenical liberation army, you know, her, her total um, appropriation of them for the purposes of, of ratings, uh, you know, give them their show, give them their mousy tongue hour, everything will be fine. I think she's, she is sort of reflecting a reality that that I'm not even sure Chayefsky was that he was intentionally trying to reflect, which is that I, I think that most Upper East Coast liberals kind of thought of they had a very analogous view of of, of radicals. The best thing Tom Wolfe ever wrote, you know, Bonfire the Vanities guy, became sort of reactionary. What's his essay on radical chic, where he narrates this party in Leonard Bernstein's apartment in uh, Upper East Side, Manhattan, and there are uh, members of the Black Panthers there. This has to be in the background of what's going on in this film, but Tom Wolfe says that it became obvious to him that these um, waspish or upper-middle-class Jewish cultural figures were using these radicals to just sort of burnish their own they were using them for their own purposes, in other words. Like I, you know, put on a dinner for the Black Panthers, so I am I am well woke. We'll right. Say. Right. Yeah, yeah. It just comes down I'm I'm the this is the hottest dinner party on the Upper East Side, right? Right. <laughs> There's still an element of that, right? The, yeah. the liberal political just the the important thing is just to, not necessarily to change anything, but to to carry around a sort of emblem of of alignment i guess with radical causes i mean it's more complicated than that but there is there is a way in which this film is kind of reflecting it one of the interesting things about uncut yeah yeah go for it go for it sorry uncut Uncut gems was so interesting and how it was portraying howard ratner as 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 a very jewish character at least in terms of heritage and you know that sort of the trappings of judaism in his life and then interacting with the African-American athlete world or the African-American world with uh, Damani as the, the liaison between yeah. the two worlds. I mean, that taps into a whole richer history of like American uh, radicalism and social change that came out again. I don't know if you saw the Nick Cannon thing that came out recently, how Nick Cannon had this... Um, Vaguely aware of it, but yeah, go Well, go he, he was he was... In an, on an interview, and I don't know the guy who was interviewing him, except that the guy was loosely connected, at least in the past, to Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. And Nick Cannon, you know, said some pretty anti-Semitic things there, which which echoed a lot of things that Louis Farrakhan said. You know, basically that the Jews are not the chosen people, but that you know, and and that Jews are control. You know, it it. it it gets into all the conspiracy theories about you know, yeah. controlling, you know, the banks and the Rothschilds, you know, uh, but, so... but, you know, there, there was this, there's this whole history. Um, I mean, another episode is just the whole civil rights movement where you have, 
uh, you know, Martin Luther King and the, and the, 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 the sit-ins and, and the freedom rides and everything like that. But um, at a certain point, you have sort of an influx of Jewish Americans, specifically from college campuses in the North and Northeast, you know, driven by very idealistic uh, visions of, of what they wanted to happen. Um, you know, getting involved in the civil rights movement and marching and, you know, it became a, an emblem of honor to say I marched with Dr. King later on. If you dig into that history a little bit more, there were deep resentments that, that grew up around that because Southern blacks thought that these Jewish liberal activists from the North were trying to take over the movement, which it's it's a little bit of a, it's a complicated history, but it's this underlying tension between two persecuted, oppressed peoples, right? Yeah. Having a history to draw from that is undeniable, even though you know some would deny it, uh, right. in terms yeah. of, of being being oppressed. But then, in America, you have this mixture. I mean, it doesn't have to be combustible, but it turned up out to be combustible. And and you know, Louis Farrakhan ran with it, but I do know that a lot of what I just read on the internet in relation to the Nick Cannon thing is like repeating Farrakhan's view of of Jews almost verbatim in yeah. 2020. So how deep does this go? I don't. I think a wider project of mine right now is really I've been really into like 20th century conspiracy thought, and I think mm. like subconsciously it's been me wanting to try and understand the whole like QAnon phenomenon, which is, you know, like the sort of white conservative <laughs> version of something like, I don't, I don't want to, I yeah. guess I shouldn't be drawing parallels, but I, yeah, there's, there's the way this conspiratorial thinking and the way it's, it's racialized in certain ways, how that sort of persists and, keeps going and, and tends to influence things is uh, a scares me B is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And so when I, when I see an uncut gems, the fact that, you know, this, these black opals were mined by these Ethiopian Jews and there's an image of these gems uh, sort of spread out on a Torah there, there's a lot going on there, and I'm not sure exactly what the Saf people yeah. are trying to to say. But you know, then Damani is this this liaison figure who is allowing Howard access to this world. Uh, African Americans with money who can who can buy jewelry, but then you have uh, Kevin Garnett pushing back and saying, "Okay, what's the provenance of this? You know, are, are right. people were, were were Africans exploited in getting these and Howard's saying, oh, no, 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 it's all, it's all on the up and up. Yeah, it, like, it, right. Howard's rejoinder is like, I made all the calls. I put right. in all the time. And, you know, Kevin Garnett's like, okay, these guys got it out of the ground and you paid them a hundred grand, maybe yeah. like, you know, right. questioning that. Um, right. There's exploitation here. It, it, it's sort of the scene where Damani is feeling like he's being played by Howard to a certain, or, or that, or that Howard's not respecting his his role enough or what he has to do to actually make this liaison work, you know, kind of culminates in uh, Damani, you know, pouring the red, I don't know, red dye or something into the fish tank. It seems like the fish are maybe the only thing that are not, that, that Howard's not willing to exchange. You know, he gives the other guy that, you know, shirt off his back basically. Uh, right. Or pay him for eight years of, of employment in the, in the um, Safdie films, they use colors very, interestingly it's not there's a lot going on between black and white here but but there's also throughout the whole passover seder episode or scene uh i detected a little bit of a faint like red tint to the to the lens you know they've set that that color as right at the beginning as being associated with the mangled leg you know that this is about blood even earlier, well, in the earlier film, Good Time, you, you have red being used um, in the scenes between the brothers, especially quite a bit. They, they seem to be giving a red tint to. Oh, yeah. That, well, the red the red dye after the uh, the heist. Right. You know, Damani, that, that, that seems to be a highly symbolic thing, pouring the red dye into his, his fish tank. Um, yeah. It's almost, it's it's a plague image, right? It's one of the plagues, turning the water yeah, into blood. Yeah. I, you know, I would have to go back and look at it even 
one more time to see if the, the Egyptian plagues play a, a deeper role throughout the film. But that certainly is, is yeah. alluding to that, I think. Did you have a, a thought here? Otherwise, uh... there was, shoot, there's one other thing. You know, I made all sorts of notes on how much communication is going on through barriers in Uncut Gems. Oh, interesting. They're, you know, they're t- people are talking through glass a lot. Uh, of course, they're talking through cell phones. Howard is, is talking to the woman in charge of the auction sort of secondhand. There's, there's very, I don't think mediation is the right term for it. It's almost like there's a, things in between that are actually keeping people from uh, going beyond the transactional, right? So you start good, right. good time starts with the with the brothers you know, going to the bank and talking to the bank teller through the glass. It, it, it's the iconic image of the you know pure transaction. Uh, we will give you you know your life supposedly yeah. if you give us the money you know under the glass, and that's that's the extent of our communication. It's it's both like communication infrastructure and the built environment, and I think. Like that's especially relevant for New York because like yeah. their work seems to capture New York as it is now. Like they're like, no, the danger isn't gone. It's just contained. Mm. It's, it's, it's shoved to these places. You don't yeah. um, see, you know, you know, time, Times square is a tourist attraction. Now it's, it's not all just, you know, porno theaters and, and drug dealers. It's, but those things still exist. They're just not visible anymore. And it's, Oh, we've maybe partially, you know, intentionally through, law enforcement policy in the intervening years but yeah definitely uh you know this is the world we've built one in which the way we construct our environments is to yeah take everything down to the purely transactional well i mean it's Um, it's something in all big cities right you have these big buildings and um these buildings are are not just pieces of architecture they're they're barriers right you go to london and uh you walk down the street you're gazing at the surface of, of all these buildings, unless they're museums, you can go into them. Otherwise, you are absolutely not permitted to try to enter right. any of these. You are you are definitely only to uh, gaze upon these surfaces, and yeah. you know it's up to your imagination what's going on on the other side. And you know, I think I think that goes back. Maybe this can be sort of a an, an ending uh, thought, and it goes. It's connected back to what happens uh, to the culture in general in the 70s, right? A lot of these films are responding to a situation, uh, cultural, political, social situation in which there's this sudden disconnect between uh, what they're being told and what the reality is, right? They're being told the Vietnam War is about this and it's going well. and But then other images are contradicting that. And, you know, the, the president's lying to us and and you know there 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 are there are people pulling the the strings and causing the economy you know to have these wild swings up and down and so this this whole sense of there's no way to get to the actual levers of power and so how do you actually say I mean, anything that has an effect that's yeah that's tapping into something like i mean uh one of our our uh, to drop a little innuendo about our projects that have given rise to this discussion uh that's the psychogeography of of the 70s like is yeah. okay so this old stuff isn't working and then i think that really sets up how utopian neoliberalism probably felt at the moment it's like all right so all the old stuff it's not working okay we we fixed racism the civil rights movement right. happened that's fixed we can put that to bed right, right. so okay Okay, the government doesn't work anymore. New York City's gone broke. Uh, oh, it turns out the banks have more power than them. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's just get into this situation where everybody's just the measure of their ability within a market economy. Like, mm-hmm. that's about as level a playing field as we can hope for. And then, mm-hmm. obviously, all that's led to is just plunder and rapaciousness for however long. Uh, and now we're, we're kind of reaping, uh, reaping what was sown way well, back when <laughs> well you've got you've got a double invisibility here you got an uh, the the invisible flows of capital which are which are happening and shaping the world around us 
But then you have the invisible uh, suffering of, again, how that's coming down on people's bodies around the globe. What, what's happening in these uh, Chinese cities where, you know, 20 million, you don't even, you've never heard of the city before, but 20 million people live there. I, you know, there's, there's all of this invisible. Every, everything's hidden from view to maintain this illusion that we're all just individuals. History is has ended, and yet people are still being sort of viciously caught in something that looks very much like history. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I could have ended this uh, better on purpose. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to think about. Well, it's a little heavy, but... Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I hope we had some fun along the way. Well, Ooh, uh, we absolutely did. Thanks, Mike, for coming on. This was, this was great. Well, thank you, Josh. It was good to, to hear your voice. I, I, yeah. We've had very mediated uh, communication. This is a, a little bit less so, maybe, but uh, approaching some some genuine connection in a in a bankrupt and uh, atomized world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Odd Splice. Be sure to visit oddsplice.com for all of your Odd Splice needs, and don't forget to rate and review the show wherever podcasts are sold. Thanks. Everybody.